Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad you could join us on this beautiful day. And it is a beautiful day, isn't it? No matter what the weather is, no matter what's going on in your world, today is a great day. Why? Because Jesus Christ made this day and he is reigning and ruling and he is telling you to celebrate it. So, Let's declare together, this is the day the Lord has made, and you say, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Ah, and I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good. All right, so we are continuing on with our study of Isaiah, and today we're going to, we're getting ever closer to that passage that we all know, Isaiah 53. And we're familiar with the suffering servant there, but we need to see the context as it was originally given. So that's what we're going to build toward today. And there's a familiar passage also for any of you who are missionaries or have been part of uh, missionary commissioning services. We talked about back in Isaiah 6, that's maybe the most popular missions commissioning text, right? Uh, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Well, this, uh, this text we're going to get to today, Paul quotes in Romans 10, who will, how will they hear without a preacher and how will they preach without being sent and all that. We're going to see the original context of that today as we get here to uh, in Isaiah 51. So here's how it begins. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. This double call, we've already seen that a couple times in the, in the last day or two. Awake, awake, that kind of thing. Rouse yourself. If you remember uh, earlier uh, in the passage, it was um, uh, Jerusalem or Zion telling the Lord to awaken. They cried out, awake, awake. Well, it turns out he is awake. He's been doing things. He's been planning things. It's, it's Jerusalem that has been slumbering. And so now the call is, rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Now, there's a couple things there worth highlighting. Uh, first of all, where else do we see this idea of the anger of the Lord as a cup. Can you think of it? Where else uh, do we see that there is a cup that someone is going to drink and it is a cup of God's wrath and anger? Let me give you a moment to, uh, to comment and see if anybody uh, understands what I'm, what I'm alluding to there. While I'm waiting for that, let's pick up the other piece of this. This is a scene where Jerusalem has been wiped out. Right? That's a this is a sobering statement. The chalice of reeling, you have drained it. This cup of God's wrath, you have put it to your lips and you have raised it up and every single drop of God's wrath has been spent on you. There's none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. Speaking of Jerusalem, she's got all these children, but none of them can guide her. No one is there to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. So the, the sons of Jerusalem are helpless here. 
they've they've been wiped out by God's wrath. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, famine and sword. How shall I comfort you? So you see the imagery here. This is the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Zion. Uh, they've been wiped out. Their, their sons are helpless to help them. God says, how can I comfort you? Look at you. You're, you're devastated. You're destroyed. There's famine. There's sword. Everything God said would come upon Jerusalem has come upon them. Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street like an antelope in a net full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. All right, so nobody, nobody uh, knows what I'm talking about or what I'm alluding to when I, when I refer here to the, uh, the cup of God's anger. Do you remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he has come face to face with the end for which he was sent. He recognizes the time has come. If you think about John's gospel, uh, he continually says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then he invites the dis disciples to go with him to the garden because his hour has come. His hour for what? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's pouring out his, his grief before his father. And what does he say? Oh, Father, let what pass from me? Let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of God's wrath. Right? So Jesus is embodying this vision here that Isaiah sees in Isaiah. So back to the original context. God is saying, I look at you and you have experienced all the destruction and famine and, and uh, uh, well, the wrath. I've poured out my cup of wrath on you. You have drunk every single drop. How can I... How can I comfort you? Where, where is there hope here? There is hope, as always. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. In other words, they are staggering. They are intoxicated, but not with alcohol, but with God's wrath. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people, even though he's the one who's bringing this wrath, he still has a, a judicial pleading, pleading for them. There's still a, a court event to take place. That's what the contend is. This is another judicial term. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. Isn't that interesting? They have consumed it to the last drop. And yet now he says, I've taken it out of your hand and you're not going to ever experience this again. Now, now, put your thinking caps on. Can this be talking about the, the literal city of Jerusalem? The ethnic Jews? 
It can't be, can it? Because the famine and destruction that God has been talking about through Isaiah is fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, before Christ. Here he says, it's happened. You've experienced it all. You've received my wrath. I've poured it out in full. You will never receive that again. You'll never drink this cup of reeling again. I've taken it out of your hand. What's the problem? What question does that raise? Well, we now have the benefit of hindsight. We know that Jerusalem was destroyed yet again. Even a worse devastation and desolation than happened in 586. It happened in, in 70 AD. So already we're being set up. We're being, uh, there, there are hints for us, especially who know the rest of the story. Something else is going on here. This is not simply talking about the destruction of the city. His anger, his cup is not only going to be poured out on uh, the city. And I've already given it away. <laughs> it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. He says, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and the street like those who walk over you. So he's said this already before that the, the oppressors, those nations who are conquering you, Jerusalem, Zion, uh, I'm going to take them in your place. You're going to be freed, but they are going to suffer. So he's, he's going back to that idea here. So there's, again, like there's so many times we've seen in Isaiah, there's all these layers of, uh, of meaning, of fulfillment uh, along the way. But here he says, I'm going to take the cup out of your hand, this cup of anger, and I'm going to give it to those who've walked across your back, who've, who've treated you like a doormat. And then more expression of hope. Awake, awake. Again, we see uh, these rouse, rouse, awaken, awaken. All the, awake, awake, clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Put on, put on not, not just your outer garments, not just a, a, a cloak or something. Put on strength. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Why? For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Okay, again, this cannot be talking simply about the Jews going back to Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar sacked it in 586. Why? Because they did go back, they rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the temple and they were ruled over by the uncircumcised and the unclean for the next 600 years. Until finally, the Gentiles destroyed the city in 70 AD, what I was just talking about. And yet here the promise is 
the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Dress yourself with strength and beautiful garments. You're a holy city. And what did Jesus say over and over again to the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people in his day? They were unclean. They were hypocrites. Oh, they acted clean. They presented themselves as holy, but they weren't. They were the embodiment of wickedness. So you see, this this prediction here, this prophecy is not talking about ethnic Israel, geopolitical Israel, and Jerusalem. So maybe you were raised in a church, maybe you have been persuaded in your life that we are waiting for the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of the Jews to Jerusalem, which happened in 1948, and that all these prophecies about ethnic Israel and geopolitical Israel and the physical city of Jerusalem have yet to be fulfilled. It can't be. That's not what we're waiting for. That's not what's going on here. Another thing to notice, because this will come into play here in a few moments, another section, is these uh, beautiful garments. Do you know who wore these beautiful garments? This, this wording is used one other place in the Old Testament that is uh, in a similar context. It's the priests. But the language is broader here than just the priests. He's talking to all of Zion to put on priestly garments. See where that's going? Hold on. I'll make it clear for those of you who aren't there yet. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. It kind of sounds like the uh, uh, the Christmas song we sing, right? Um, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Rise up, captive Israel. Same kind of thing. Shake up. Shake the dust from yourself. Rise up. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. You you have been freed, so take off the chains. Rise up. Get out of the dust and go. Why? Verse 3. For thus says the Lord. You were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. Now, who's the one that sold them into slavery? God did, right? In his anger, in his fury, in his wrath, he sold them, but he didn't receive anything for them. He didn't complete the transaction where he says, here, I'll sell them to you as slaves, and you give me something in return. No, that's not what happened. God didn't benefit from this. So they were sold for nothing, and now he's going to buy them back from slavery, but not with cash, not with money. So since he's buying them back, redeeming them, coming in as the kinsman redeemer, if you know the story of Boaz and the the other uh, examples in the law, He's buying them back without money, so they should get up, take off their chains. They've been freed. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. So their first enslavement as a people was to the Egyptians way back at the time of the Exodus. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. So now he's referring to recent history when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. So it's it's an A to Z kind of statement here. Egypt to Assyria. 
That's the, the whole extent of the Jews being enslaved at this point. So it's a, it's a, a total uh, enslavement. So that's what happened. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? This is the same phrase as earlier, for nothing. Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. This is the state God finds them in. They're rulers, the rulers of the Jews. They howl and wail. They're helpless to do anything. They can't deliver them. The rulers of the people are, are worthless and helpless. They can't save Israel. And my name is continually blasphemed all day long. The, the, the whole nation is in, in blasphemy. They're in rebellion. All the things he's been saying all the way through Isaiah. Interestingly, this verse, my name is continually blasphemed, Paul quotes in Romans 2, as a rebuke of the Jews, right? He is, if you remember that passage, he's, he's acknowledging that the Gentiles are going to be condemned even though they don't have God's law because they still sinned against God even without the law. But what about the Jews? Are they righteous because they have the law? No. They are going to be condemned by the law because they didn't keep it. And he goes through that section where he says, you know, those who preach don't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? And the expected answer is yes. You who uh, say don't steal, do you steal? Yes. And then he quotes this passage that all day long you blaspheme the name of God. So when Jesus shows up, he is not coming to a righteous people. When the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Redeemer appears, he's not coming to a righteous, godly people. He's coming to a bunch of blasphemers who are helpless to do anything about it. This is the state of the people, of the Jews, that God is uh, going to redeem them out of. Therefore, my people shall know my name. They're blaspheming me. They don't know my name, but they will. Therefore, in that day, the one who is speaking, here I am, they're going to know him. So this whole thing, you've been judged, you have consumed my wrath, and yet I'm going to redeem you right now. The leaders of the people, the rulers the, the, uh, of God's people are, are helpless to help them and they're blaspheming me and they're leading the people in blasphemy. But there's a coming a day when they will all know my name. And then verse 7. This is the one that we know. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. And brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. So this imagery here of uh, the feet on the mountains. Uh, in that day, they had watchmen on a tower watching for the messenger who would come running from, uh, from the war front, for instance. If there was battle 
if you'd sent your troops in the battle, they didn't have all the communications devices we do, right? They, they had to physically send people, runners, with information. And so these watchmen would get up on the watchtowers, up on the hills or something, and they would look at the, at the direction of the, uh, the battle, and they learned, they, they trained themselves to, to watch for the runners, the one who was coming with news, and they learned to tell whether or not the runner was bringing good news or bad news. They had a, a light step, and they were running with great zeal and, and joy if they were bringing good news, like, we, we won. We won the battle. We won the war. And they would run with a heavier, uh, more somber gait if they were bringing bad news. We lost. We're still at war. We're conquered, whatever. That's the, the imagery here when he says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Right? These, these captives, Jerusalem, are going to see someone who's bringing good news. News of peace. Shalom, great blessing, and good news of happiness, of gladness, of good things, and announce salvation. We've been freed. We've been delivered. And he declares to Zion, your God reigns. Think of all the songs we sing taken from this passage here. Your watchmen, listen, he says, your watchmen, those who are watching for this, for this messenger, Lift up their voices, they shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem who've been devastated by the Babylonians. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. You see, the joy has come, deliverance has come, rescue has come. We can see the one coming who's running to bring us this news. Did any of that happen in 587 B.C.? I should go the other way. 585, 584, 400 B.C., 300 B.C., 200 B.C.? No. No. Century after century after century, after Israel was freed from the Babylonians by Cyrus, they were still oppressed. They were still enslaved, waiting for the redemption of God. And then Jesus shows up. He says, I'm the Redeemer. I'm your salvation, your deliverance. I have come to rescue you. And of course, they thought he meant, I'm going to release you from the shackles of the Romans as though his kingdom was this kind of earthly kingdom founded in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, no, you have a greater need. Your enslavement to a foreign power is not your biggest problem. It's your enslavement to sin and the fact that you are still subject to the wrath of God because of your wickedness. There has been no atonement. If you, Jews, suffer God's wrath, you're only getting what you deserve because you're unholy. Somehow or other, 
you have to be forgiven and your sins have to be atoned for. Someone else must drink the cup of the wrath of God in your behalf. We know, right? We know the end of this story. But this should have caused all kinds of questions in the minds of the Jews as those centuries go on after the freedom from the Babylonians, after the return to Jerusalem, and yet none of this had been fulfilled. And century after century, they are still enslaved. This is what caused them to ponder and think and ask these questions so that when Jesus shows up, his disciples, like Peter and the Apostle Paul, began to read the Old Testament in light of the fulfillment of Jesus, and they begin to see these things. Now, this section about how lovely on the feet of him who bring goods new, good, brings good news, uh, that is quoted in Romans 10, and that's what I was saying earlier. It's used a lot of times in missions commissioning services and saying, look, the, the people all over the world, they can't hear if no one sends them, and, and uh, you know, some, they got to be a preacher, and the preacher has to be sent, all that. And that's, that's a fine application of it. But in the context of Romans 10, Paul is using it in a longer section to expose the wickedness of the Jews. Because after he, after he repeats this, uh, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and all that, Paul quotes all of this and says, have the Jews heard? Surely they haven't heard, right? Because if they had heard that this good news was coming, they would have believed. But the vast majority of the Jews in Paul's day did not believe. They rejected the message of Christ. So he's actually quoting Isaiah 52 here, not as an announcement of good news, but as another means of condemning the Jews of his day, who did in fact hear the good news, but did not believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prediction. So again, there's nothing wrong with using Romans 10 as a, as a impetus for sending out missionaries. But just know that that is not the point that Paul is making in Romans 10. It's not about sending people. It's about they've already been sent and the Jews did not heed the news. All right, last thing as we wrap up here. He says, depart, depart, go out from here, touch nothing unclean, leave, flee Jerusalem, flee your enslavement, go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. He is setting up the priestly priesthood of all of us here. And I alluded to this earlier. He says, leave you who carry the vessels of the Lord. So the imagery is taken from uh, carrying the vessels from, um, from Babylon back to the temple in Jerusalem. But again, the broader context here obviously is not that because these things are not all fulfilled. All of those who are in Jerusalem, in the New Jerusalem, when the Redeemer comes, all of us are to leave exile and we are all priests carrying the vessels of the Lord. And we're not touching unclean things. 
He says, this time when you leave, you will not go out in haste. Like the, the Jews left Egypt in a hurry. Remember, they, they did, that's where the unleavened bread idea came from. Don't even put leaven in your bread and take time there. Just grab your bread and go. When we leave enslavement, when the Redeemer comes, it won't be like that. You won't go out as fugitives. You will be carrying God's vessels, holy and pure, with him before you and him in the rear. This imagery is taken from Joshua. If you remember, when they carried the, uh, the ark around the, um, uh, the city before the fall of Jericho, God was before them and after them. The priests, right? Before and after, God was was surrounding and circling and, and protecting on all sides his people. Same imagery is used here. So we're all all of these things are being set up for understanding what Christ came to do, his deliverance, his rescue. But something else has to happen first. Because if there's no atonement, then no matter how many times God frees the Jews from foreign powers, they are still subject to God's own wrath. And of course, that's where we're heading in chapter 53. We'll head there a little closer tomorrow. So come back as we anticipate the suffering servant. Have a great day. Lord willing, we will see you back here tomorrow. Continue our study of Isaiah.